You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Good to be back with you, Prashant. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, doing well in quarantine here in New York City. Um, certainly, uh, things are getting a little worse, but uh, we're hopefully um, going to uh, all get through this. So, obviously, as listeners are aware, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Um much of the world is now coming around to the reality of what that requires in terms of a policy response. So we're going to spend this podcast again talking a little bit about COVID-19 or the coronavirus disease um, and its spread around the Asian region, um, simply because it is the biggest story right now in regional geopolitics, occupying the uh, most of the attention of nearly every government in the Asia Pacific and indeed around the world. Um, but we have two good pegs, I think, for this episode. Uh, the first is regarding the postponement of the International Olympic Games this summer. So Japan, uh, which had very much been looking forward to hosting the Games, had held off for a fair bit of time, uh, even as it became apparent that there would really be no way that the Games could take place under the conditions that had become quite apparent even a month ago um, as a result of COVID-19. But finally, a few days ago, the Shinzo Abe uh, government, along with the International Olympic Committee, decided that the Olympic Games would be postponed to no later than summer 2021. Um, so by next year, there will be Olympics, but they won't be happening as scheduled uh, this summer. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means for Japan's um, position more generally, the Abe government's ambitions, um, certainly the economic consequences for Japan, which are, I think, quite significant to talk about here. And uh, then we'll move on a little bit to talk about uh, COVID-19 in South Asia. We we touched on that a little bit two podcasts ago when we talked about the virus and its implications around the region. But I think it's really worth um, zeroing down a little bit, especially as many of the major economies in the region, including most notably India, which has put 1.3 billion people under lockdown for three weeks, are, are uh, taking um, drastic steps. So we'll talk a little bit about um, how the South Asian region is coping and the potential consequences there. But... Uh, Prashant, so without further ado, let's talk a little bit about the Olympics. Uh, so the cancellation, I think, was becoming clearer um, mm -hmm. around a week ago. I mean, on March 23rd, uh, three major countries, uh, Australia, Canada, the UK, all said that they would have their teams withdraw from the Olympics um, if Japan and the IOC didn't agree to postpone it for a year. And I think that really started to break the dam on the inevitable postponement. Um, so this marks the first ever times that the that the Summer Olympic Games or any Olympic Games have been postponed. They were canceled uh, in uh, 1916 during the First World War and 40 and 44 during the Second World War. Um, but a postponement has never happened before. So this will be pushing the Olympics on to 2021. And then, of course, the Winter Olympic Games will be happening in 2022. But it's really a major setback for the Abe government, which was hoping to have this as sort of a capstone of uh, Prime Minister Abe's time in power. He's the longest-serving post-war prime minister in Japan in power since 2012 for a second non-consecutive term that is still running. Um, many had pointed to the fact that the 2012 games would have been sort of a moment of resurgence for Japan after um, more than a decade after the uh, 2011 um, or nearly a decade after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami and Fukushima Daiichi meltdown uh, disasters. But unfortunately, that'll have to come later. Um, but what do you um, what do you make of uh, this delay? What does it really mean for Japan in your view, Prashant? 
I mean, I think as you put it, it it is, you know, sort of difficult to kind of plan for such a big global sporting event amid a global pandemic. And, and actually, we've seen, you know, one of one of the big consequences of this uh, COVID-19 issue is that we have seen a lot of sports being either canceled or postponed really across the board, uh, which really has, you know, robbed uh, folks of one of the distractions that might uh, that they might turn to amid this pandemic. And I, I think this is a case that we've seen here. I, I think the consequences, you know, like you said, I mean, this was kind of seen as Japan's sort of comeback moment. Um, and so that kind of, you know, removes a little bit of the shine of a moment for Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, which, you know, we've been talking about Asia geopolitics for, for many years on this podcast. And he's kind of the closest that we have to a sort of a permanent fixture uh, in the Asian security landscape. And so that, that really is a, a, a big development for his leadership. But also, you know, looking forward, um, you know, given the fact that, you know, there has been this dynamic in Japan where there's talk about, you know, what's going to happen in the next few years uh, with respect to Abe's uh, leadership, uh, potential transition, a, a subsequent term, uh, potential succession in Japanese politics. This will, so it's a big event within Japan's political calendar too. So I'm interested to see how this affects Japan Politically, I mean, economically, there's obviously going to be issues with respect to cancellation costs, uh, you know, potential revenue that was supposed to be gotten by Japan. And of course, the the impacts in Japan's economy, as as with the world economy, uh, with the global pandemic, is going to be uh, important to watch as well. Yeah, no, I think uh, Abe has certainly proven to be a political survivor. Uh, he was dealing with multiple scandals a couple of years ago, looked like he mm -hmm. might not last to lead the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, the party that's mostly ruled Japan in the post-world era, with, with the exception of a, a brief period of rule by the Democratic Party of Japan. But um, the Olympics have also brought him in for criticism. Um, there have been cost overruns, and um, not to mention Japan's initial reaction to the coronavirus then epidemic as it was breaking out in China was also widely criticized within the country. Um, you know, the decision to um, close down schools prematurely, although in in hindsight, you know, Japan did appear to be prescient given the wider state mm -hmm. of um, lockdowns in the region and around the world. And also uh, Tokyo, you know, I mean, talking to people in Tokyo right now, I mean, it seems like life has mostly been normal. Uh, which, you know, the, the same can't be said for other major cities in the region, including Hong Kong, Seoul, Singapore, where things have slowed down a little bit. But Japan is now evidently turning a corner. Uh, there has been some interesting reporting, um, especially from Reuters and a few other places, talking about the internal sort of war gaming that the Abe administration was doing on the decision to cancel the Olympics. Um, they were sort of caught in a difficult position where early on, if the Abe government had reacted to coronavirus in a more heavy-handed way than it actually did, which many people were calling for, that would inherently make it impossible for Tokyo to even think about hosting the Olympics. So they had to sort of toe the line, even as it became apparent, I think, to many people outside Japan, that really there was no way the Olympics could happen. And I guess politically, there's also, uh, you know, I think one of the significant things to keep in mind is that the eventual decision came um, as a sort of bilateral statement right between the ioc and abe in which which i think is important because that doesn't actually put the japanese prime minister out in front of this decision sort of owning owning this um you know owning this very unfortunate um turn of events with the pandemic and having to reschedule the games it allows for abe to at least um absorb the political implication i think a little bit better 
Um, mm-hmm. But I think the cost issue is just going to be insurmountable, right? So there have been cost overruns. Japan is thought to have spent more than 26 billion U.S. dollars on hosting the Olympic Games in Tokyo. The delay, I've seen a few numbers, but the estimates for what the delay will cost Japanese taxpayers on top of what's already been spent is about three to six billion dollars. So, you know, I think when it comes to um, Abe's economic plans, Abenomics and the three arrows of uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy and structural reform, a lot of that is also about to go haywire, uh, not only because of the delay of the Olympics. Indeed, I think the Olympics are actually going to end up being a minor factor given the broader global economic slowdown. But certainly, I think this is looking to be an inauspicious late-term development for Abe, uh, which might, I think, seriously color his legacy uh, as he does prepare to leave office. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, that economic legacy is sort of important, right? Because the, the last time, you know, Japan uh, had its Olympic moment was like in 1998, when, you know, this was supposed to be seen as a comeback moment relative to that period where there was a little bit more uncertainty about Japan's economic growth. And, you know, there was there were plans to actually show that, you know, Japan was back uh, economically as, as well as politically, and that kind of may get in the way of that. The the other thing that, that's important to, to, to note as well is, I mean, there has been, uh, you know, after Japan, you know, given the postponement, it goes up to 2021. And important to emphasize here that just because there is a postponement, now the, the, the attention will turn into, you know, when is this actually going to be held? And if they aren't able to arrive at logistical details to actually reschedule this, you know, the, the, the sort of, um, you know, speculation will continue about, you know, whether this is going to be actually canceled. A lot of these sporting events, there's been postponements to buy folks time to actually plan for this stuff. But if, you know, this pandemic lasts, uh, you know, in the worst case scenarios, you know, till, till the end of this year, then it's going to be very difficult to actually get this planning in place for 2021. And, and that matters not only for Japan, but also, you know, you're looking ahead to 2022, China and the Winter Olympics is also the the kind of the next uh, you know main event with respect to Asia and the Olympics, and there have been calls. It's, it's still you know not I, I wouldn't say you know sort of mainstream, but there have been folks that have been calling for you know the the fact that China has been you know not a very responsible actor. You know whether there there should be a boycott of the Olympics or at least a little bit more scrutiny on that. Um, you know one of the questions I have is you know how will this impact uh, some of the later Olympic developments, including uh, China's Winter Olympics, beyond what Japan does in 2021. Right, right, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think you sort of hinted at the worst case scenario here for Japan, which is, I think, ultimately a cancellation, resulting in a very high bill for really no payoff. But I mean, I think we should also talk about the you know the better case outcome here. I mean, there is a world where. After this pandemic ravages the world, Japan gets to be the country that brings people together. I mean, the Olympic Games come in for a lot of criticism for things like corruption, backdealing, uh, costs, certainly. Um, but ultimately, you know, they are kind of a manifestation of symbolic global unity, showing the best mm-hmm. of humanity. So if the Japanese government wants to lean into that and make that sort of the symbol of the Olympic Games in 2021... I think, you know, that could be a really great honor for Japan to be the country that gets to host these games in these very unusual circumstances after the pandemic dust has cleared. But of course, like you said, it's 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 easy to say that on a podcast um, in March 2020, but it's very difficult to plan around that for next year. Uh, because like you said, we just don't know um, how things are going to develop and change. And um, certainly there's a lot of scrambling right now in Tokyo 
to um, figure out what can and cannot be done um, for next year. There's also the other issue that I think many of the athletes um, will be under financial concerns, um, mm -hmm. financial constraints, because next year there is a hope that many regular sports will resume their regular schedules, their tournaments planned, championships planned. And are those going to then be moved so athletes can attend the Olympics? Um, so there's a lot of scheduling issues just to be figured out. But uh, certainly I think this is um, something that the Japanese government was hoping to not have to deal with in 2020, especially with the anticipation that had been built up. I mean, Tokyo 2020 was the cornerstone of Japan's public diplomacy efforts uh, throughout mm -hmm. 2019 and 2018, uh, really calling the world to Japan um, and now having to postpone the games is just not a situation that I think anybody in Tokyo um, had anticipated. So uh, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on this. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the spread of coronavirus to South Asia. We, we hit on South Asia very quickly last time um, we talked about the pandemic, um, but as with exponential growth with these things, things have come a very long way. So India, I think, is really going to be a major um, focus of a lot of the global coverage of the pandemic in the coming weeks. Uh, so uh, a few days ago, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi put the entire country, 1.3 billion people, under a lockdown for 21 days. Um, and he made a very sort of dramatic appeal saying that, you know, if, if the Indian people can't handle 21 days under quarantine, he said, this country and your family will go back 21 years, implying that the economic blowback of COVID-19 in India will be vast. Um, and of course, um, Amodi also acknowledged that there would be costs to such a lockdown in the first place, uh, especially uh, he noted that this would be particularly difficult for poorer Indians. He added that the only option is social distancing to remain away from each other. There is no way out to escape from coronavirus besides this. And uh, India's reaction, I think, has also been interesting in the diplomatic realm. Um, Modi, for the first time in um, more than three years, uh, activated the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, or SARC, one of the less um, effective regional um, institutions in the Asia-Pacific region. It's a, it's a collection of the leaders of the uh, South Asian countries. Um, all of the leaders attended except for Pakistan, uh, which sent ministerial level representation uh, to a video conference to discuss the implications of the pandemic uh, for the region at large. And they um, all the countries began putting in um, modest amounts of money into a regional fund to support um, disaster response efforts uh, to the pandemic in the region. But already there's been reports that uh, the Modi government's decision-making, although it has been bold, has left uh, implementation um, wanting. For example, there was confusion about whether people were allowed to leave their homes to purchase groceries or um, how this would be handled for, um, you know, there, the Modi government is using some smartphone-based apps to help people um, receive mm -hmm. um, handouts for um, economic support uh, during this time, but many people don't have smartphones, so what is the actual implementation going to look like? Some critics of the government have sort of compared this to, you know, other big decisions by the Modi government, including, uh, most infamously, the November 2016 uh, decision uh, to uh, demonetize the Indian rupee by removing 86% of the country's currency supply from uh, circulation, uh, which also had problems in implementation. But uh, India is certainly taking very bold steps here. And there are concerns in South Asia, uh, not just in India, but in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, uh, around the region, that the poor healthcare infrastructure combined with poverty, combined with high population density, 
really, really uh, leaves the region incredibly vulnerable to a potentially disastrous um, pandemic outcome here. But um, there is still some ambiguity about how the virus behaves in humid climates, hot climates. Um, the summer isn't quite here yet in South Asia, but it is around the corner. Um, India is also uh, the Indian railways, uh, which are uh, one of the largest employers in the world, uh, the largest employer certainly within India, um, shut down all of its operations. Uh, so I think that was a really major uh, signal uh, to the rest of the country that this was getting quite serious. And uh, yeah, you're, you're starting to see pictures from major Indian cities like Mumbai and New Delhi really showing a unrecognizable landscape of just uh, empty areas. Um, people are still, of course, uh, especially poor Indians uh, who have no other recourse, uh, continue to work and um, participate in their um, normal daily activities. And the government's trying to deter that. So you've seen scenes of police sort of cracking down and trying to make sure that people do stay inside. Um, but it's it's going to be an uphill struggle, I think, for the Indian government from here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I think this is sort of a challenge that uh, you know really big countries like like India face. I mean, that when the situation and and this is not unique to India. I mean, the coronavirus we've seen, you know, it has a tendency to sneak up on governments by initially showing up in just a few cases, and the governments kind of think they have it under control, and then it starts escalating quite quickly, and there's just this alarm and panic. Um, and so I think you're seeing kind of the similar trend in India where the government has said, you know, for now, at least for the next few weeks, we'll be on lockdown and let's kind of figure out what we're going to do. I think the the, the key question is with respect to, you know, any lockdown um, across these countries is it kind of buys you time and, and mitigates things for a while. But the question is, what do you do with that time? And it, And all that boils down to, you know, the fundamental question you raised, which is, if there are concerns about infrastructure, whether it be uh, testing, uh, health facilities, containing local outbreaks, how will the Indian government actually use this time? And, and one hopes they'll use this effectively to actually manage this. Um, and while they're actually trying to manage all of that, they also have to manage the fallout from this. And part of that is you know, just the logistics of actually implementing a huge lockdown like this. We've seen similar cases like this in the United States, which is a democracy. China has a little bit more of an easier time because they're not a democracy, and so they they can use some of these measures. But the other aspect of this is political, right? So as you pointed out, you know the Modi government has faced uh, you know a lot of criticism for some of its policies, including demonetization, and this notion of authoritarianism and authoritarian tendencies. When you have a lockdown policy like this, it it, it sort of encourages political opponents to kind of point to this as being a manifestation of what the Modi government has been doing. So dealing with not just the pandemic, but also the fallout from these, uh, you know, these policies is actually going to be a, a, a huge challenge. And I, I really don't think we'll, we'll know the outcome in, in a few weeks. I think the recent indications we've gotten is that there have been, you know, something like 30,000 known tests in India for over 1.3 billion people, which right. is, you know, quite insignificant. So until we get those numbers up, we really won't have a clear sense as to how India is actually, you know, managing the time that it's bought with this 21-day lockdown. Yeah, right. And I think, and I think that's part of the reason why they're going for the lockdown strategy is because of the limited mm -hmm. testing capacity. India is reaching out to, I think, other countries, including South Korea, to receive assistance on testing. Uh, but I think it remains to be seen um, how widespread that testing can be within the country.
Um, I think um, it's mm-hmm. it's worth also talking about the the response in Pakistan and Bangladesh. Uh, but we can start with Pakistan. I mean, Pakistan was, I think, uh, the first in South Asia to confirm a case on its on its soil in Karachi, I believe, early on. Uh, and that was not so surprising because Pakistan does share a land border with Iran, um, which, as mm-hmm. listeners probably know, is one of the worst uh, struck countries by the coronavirus um, in, in general. So Pakistan's been coping with this for a while now. Uh, again, we don't have good testing data from Pakistan, but the government, again, is particularly wary of the economic consequences of, of COVID-19 uh, to the extent that the Imran Khan uh, government, Prime Minister Imran Khan, oversaw a uh, economic package that is going to result in um, direct cash transfers to uh, low-income Pakistanis, um, including including laborers, uh, to try and keep them from working day to day. And um, it is also going to include things like a reduction in gas prices. But of course, the Pakistani government, um, more so than India in many ways, um, this crisis is really hitting at an inopportune time. Uh, the country just accepted uh, a bailout from the International Monetary Fund not long ago and was hoping to work towards writing its fiscal house, right? I mean, uh, this was supposed to be the time that Pakistan was going to uh, cut down on spending and uh, enter a period of relative austerity to try and balance its accounts. But um, COVID, I think, is resulting in a total... Um, abandonment of those plans, uh, as it is in many other countries. So Pakistan, again, I think, um, does face many similar issues as India. Um, it has at least been interesting to see that um, amid the crisis, uh, you know, Pakistan did agree to come to the SARC meeting uh, with India and the other regional mm-hmm. states. Um, there was uh, the original breakdown of SARC back in 2016 had to do with disagreements between India and Pakistan uh, as in the aftermath of the uh, September 2016 uh, Uri terror attacks by a Pakistan-based terrorist group. Um, the Indians refused to talk to Pakistan at the time, and the meeting collapsed after um, a few other SARC states followed India's lead and said that they wouldn't go to the SARC summit that year uh, in Pakistan. So it is it is positive to see that public health is bringing the two countries together, since uh, I think there is a lot to be gained in South Asia from regional collaboration and cooperation uh, in, a, in a time like this. Um, Bangladesh, I think, is another interesting case. I mean, again, similar to the Indian playbook, Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, um, Bangladeshi leader, has called for a uh, nationwide lockdown. Um, but also an interesting step uh, here is that the Bangladeshi government uh, released a former opposition leader uh, and Prime Minister Khaleda Zia of the Bangladesh Nationalist Party from the um, up from prison under the condition that she remain at home under quarantine. Uh, but, you know, she's elderly, and I think maybe the Bangladeshi government was a little concerned about the optics of an opposition leader potentially contracting the virus um, while in jail and the social consequences that could have. So it's interesting to sort of see the uh, intermingling between um, these uh, social and political issues in uh, many of these um, South Asian countries as well. But um, Bangladesh is also uh, obviously dealing with a number of other issues, including the very large population of um, Rohingya refugees that have fled from Mm -hmm. Myanmar. Uh, and that's, again, another concern, the humanitarian um, consequences there potentially of a coronavirus outbreak in the Rohingya community could be dire. Uh, so there are, I think, um, serious consequences also in Bangladesh and Pakistan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, I mean, to your point about, you know, the the Rohingya, um, I, I think one of the things that this global pandemic has exposed is 
really how how difficult it is to you know regardless of what policies you're implementing whether it's a lockdown or travel restrictions how difficult it is to actually implement these policies and prevent folks from moving right whether it's you know migrant workers in india um who are trying to get around and and sort of do their work day to day or it's uh, you know, Nepal, for example, you know, they they have they rely, I think it's something a little bit close to about 10 percent of Nepal's GDP is relying on tourism. And, and they've always been trying to promote, you know, this notion of, you know, visit Nepal. And they've had to deal with, you know, foreign tourists uh, as, as a challenge, really, uh, amid this global pandemic. How difficult it is to control people from from moving across borders is really something that at least it seems interesting to me in, in the South Asia context. And at, and as you pointed out, I mean, the, the SARC thing, I'm not sure what, what you sort of make of it, but it does seem to me that from a geopolitical perspective, it does stand out as one of the instances where regional cooperation is actually quite evident. I mean, in Southeast Asia, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations has really been quite missing in action uh, in terms of Southeast Asian responses. Um, so I, I did see sort of India's decision to sort of invoke uh, SARC and try to at least make an attempt at uh, a regional response as being sort of interesting. And I wonder how that will play out moving forward. Yeah, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, I think, um, you know, there is the more cynical view that India decided to put this SARC meeting together, or at least initiate the SARC meeting to take its kind of traditional position in the region as a leader in a time of crisis, right? So I think that was effective because people have mostly been positively disposed towards the fact that India was able to put aside its differences with Pakistan. Uh, you know, the Pakistani side even uh, criticized India over the lockdown in Kashmir during the SARC meeting. Uh, but India still went ahead with it. And, um, you know, the, the funding was coming through from major uh, South Asian countries. It remains to be seen how effective and sustained they'll be going forward. Um, on your note, though, about, um, you know, travel restrictions, it is interesting. I mean, for a country like Bhutan, uh, a country that we almost never talk about on the podcast, um, the first case that was detected in Bhutan was uh, actually an American tourist. And uh, Bhutan has a very interesting tourism policy where they charge foreigners a, a fixed fee to be in the country every day to control the influx of tourists into the country so the country doesn't get overrun with, you know, backpackers and the like. Uh, but after that happened, I mean, Bhutan really had to, uh, you know, move fast uh, to lock itself down from um, travelers from overseas to limit community transmission. And now with India under lockdown, there has been concern that Bhutan might not receive supplies because it does rely quite a bit on India for that. Uh, but India has been um, managing um, the regular flow of supplies into Bhutan, even as it is under lockdown itself. Another issue that I think is interesting with Nepal, um, and I think this has also come up for a few other countries in the region, is the effect that coronavirus is having on remittances, which are a major source of income for many of these poorer countries in the Asia-Pacific, including many countries in Central Asia, um, where um, many workers uh, go to Russia and the like. With the with um, travel restrictions becoming a very popular policy option for many governments in dealing with this, remittances are taking a major hit because um, overseas workers are either having to return or they find themselves out of work and stuck without work overseas. So that's, again, going to blow back uh, economically on many of these um, poorer, more vulnerable countries. Uh, but yeah, with uh, Nepal and tourism, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, the current government of Nepal uh, under uh, KP Oli and, uh, and the communists was hoping to build a national economic strategy around tourism. It's one of Nepal's greatest assets. And now um, the 
you know, again, um, it's an issue of timing. I mean, uh, this thing was really supposed to kick off this year. Um, you know, some of our listeners might recall reading last year about overcrowding on Mount Everest, uh, for, for which some people criticized the Nepali government for being a little bit too eager to uh, draw people to Nepal uh, for mountaineering and things like that. But uh, this is really, I think, going to be a major um, blowback for Nepal. Um, and, you know, especially for a country that was recovering from a devastating earthquake just a few years ago, um, there was the hope that things would begin to pick up. Um, but um, this also, I mean, uh, uh, in the geopolitical context, uh, this has, again, you know, led to concerns in India and other places that um, coronavirus could give China a major opportunity to um, attempt to sort of sweep in and help many of these countries pick up the slack uh, economically in many ways. But even with Nepal, I mean, it's interesting that um, uh, Nepal, which is a participant in the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, uh, has many projects in the country that rely on Chinese workers. And of course, after COVID broke out in China initially, um, those workers simply stopped coming to Nepal, leaving many of those projects kind of unfinished. And the fate of those projects is now under uh, under question as well so a lot of uncertainty lies ahead for the region but you know i thought i thought it was important to uh, lay out some of these issues on this episode uh, in south asia since we didn't really talk about that in too much detail on the on the last episode prashant anything else you want to add before we uh close it out no and i, I think the the point you brought up about uh the belt and road i think is really important because i i think that's one of the things i'm i'm definitely watching to see how uh this crisis actually uh, affects China's global diplomatic and economic practices. Because I think that, you know, some of the narratives have been around, you know, the fact that the Chinese have been trying to restore their image by by sending, you know, uh, protective equipment to other countries and trying to make sure that they're uh, reacting to the fact that they were the initial source uh, of the problem. But I think that we're still, in, it's still early days. And I think we'll have to wait uh, and see how this all plays out. I think the Chinese government too is very wary that, uh, you know, this is an ongoing story and they have to work very hard to sort of restore their image, which I think continues to face a lot of challenges, whether it's it's the narrative and messaging uh, that they've been trying to promote or or the realities on the ground. So, Yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh, something to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, Prashant, I think we'll close it out here for this week. Um, so as listeners know, you know, there is a debate right now about, how much podcast should really be covering coronavirus. Uh, many podcasts are just kind of going on as usual. And, uh, you know, we have lis- uh, received a fair bit of um, listener requests to cover this. And of course, I think it is inevitably going to be the biggest story in uh, world geopolitics this year and in Asian geopolitics. Uh, we'll probably wait a little bit before, you know, there has been a lot of kind of premature analysis, I think, about what coronavirus means for great power competition. And, you know, is this going to be the moment that China kind of steps up and begins to lead the world? I think it's still way too early to make any of those calls. Um, but as Prashant said, I think with the Belt and Road and things like that, it's, it's interesting to keep an eye on how um, China and other countries are um, maneuvering uh, during this time of global crisis. So we'll certainly keep an eye on that. Uh, but yeah, we'll try to take a break from the virus and uh, do some of our regular coverage. Like our last episode, we focused on Malaysia and Afghanistan. So we'll continue to focus on those stories. Um, but certainly if you're interested in a particular aspect of COVID-19 coverage, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We're very happy to take that into consideration. Um, so as usual, uh, thanks a lot for listening. And uh, if you've been a listener for a while, but you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you do that so you can uh, catch up with future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber, but you haven't yet left us a review, um, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play Podcasts, or uh, any other provider out there, including Spotify, where we're now available. And finally, before we close, just a note from our sponsor. 
This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.